how do I know if I'm truly dead? Because you can't bury your old man if he's not dead, can you? When we come to the grave and we say it's time for the committal, the commitment of our old man into the water grave, we don't want to bury a man who isn't dead. We don't want to marry Jesus if our old master is still alive, do we? If you read the sixth chapter of Romans where Paul speaks so much about baptism and he says, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? He then goes on in Romans 7 and he keeps the same thought and he is still talking about baptism. He's still talking about our covenant with Jesus. And he says, for a woman who is married, who is bound in marriage, as long as her husband lives, she is bound to him. And if she marries another, she commits adultery. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry another. And read the context. He is clearly talking about the slave master, (laughs) the husband, if you will, of the flesh. And he's saying as long as our old husband of the flesh is alive and we are married and bound to do his will, if we go and try to marry the Lord, we commit adultery. That old man, that old master that he speaks about in the last verses of chapter 6 14 through 19, amen? Whomever you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And he says, as long as that old husband is alive, you can't marry Jesus. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the meaning that he's trying to give us. But if that old husband is truly dead, then you are free to marry another. But you don't want to marry another and wake up the next morning with a knock on the door from the old husband. (laughs) What's going on? You have to truly have died to one before you can be freed to marry another. And so people would ask, how do I know that he's dead? And we told them a lot of things. We said that one of the things that you look for when someone is truly dead is a total loss of defensiveness. We're going to have a flesh that we have to keep dead because the world and all of its tricks is going to try to resurrect that flesh. Amen? But if we have truly put him to death, if we have truly offered him as a sacrifice, then we're not in love with him anymore. Do you kill someone that you're still in love with? And we're not in love with our old man. We see him as the source and reason for all of our problems and bondage, and we truly hate him with a perfect hatred, to quote King David. As Job says, I abhor myself in dust and ashes and repent. So there is an abhorring of this sinful, fleshly nature that that has tried to usurp God's place and tried to bring me into the bondage that leads to death. So one of the hallmarks of a true repentance is a loss of defensiveness. What is defensiveness? It's protecting the man who you claim you want to kill. 
Defensiveness is protecting the guy you said you wanted to kill. (laughs) Whereas, if you truly want to kill him, bring on the blows. Because they're not going to hurt my new man. (laughs) They're not going to hurt my freedom in Christ. My life is hid with God in Christ and I'm not my own defender. What can man do to me? He says, right? So, there's no defensiveness. It's like, if you can help me get this guy dead, bring it on. I want him dead too. Remember what the prophet said to the king Ahab when he had put a man in his charge, when the man was put in his charge and he didn't put him to death, he let him go, and he said, the man I devoted to destruction, you have set free. It's the same thing as with Samuel and Agag. Remember, when Saul wanted to protect Agag, we don't know all the reasons why, but he wanted to keep him alive. He felt like he was more useful alive than dead, or for whatever reason. He wanted him alive. And that's kind of a symbol, that's kind of a picture of our carnal nature and how we like to protect it through defensiveness. Defensiveness is like a resuscitation effort. Have you ever seen them trying to resuscitate someone who has died. They put defibrillators on the chest and shock him in the heart. They might put some sort of injection right into the muscle of the heart. They put wind into his mouth. They do anything and everything and there is this effort, this panicky effort, and the panic escalates. This is defensiveness until there is this point of resignation where they step back, they take off the gloves, and they say, he's dead. Now that's a terrible thing when it's someone we want to live. But if we're speaking of sin, then defensiveness is like those resuscitation efforts. We're in a panic to protect the one that the Lord devoted to destruction and that we devoted to destruction when we put him to death in repentance and buried him in baptism. And if we succeed in keeping him protected, keeping him alive, giving him a little space to live, then we become split in our loyalties. We don't even know it, but we start to serve two masters. We start to become slaves of corruption and also pretending to be slaves of God. So that was one of the ways we told him you should look to see if you were dead. Was the defensiveness gone? And then the other way was, one of many other ways, but another way we told him was that you should look to see if a victorious faith has come into your heart that chases out all self-pity all excuse making, all hiding, all negative confession. Because we told them that faith toward God is part and parcel of what repentance is. Maybe in our minds we think of repentance as a negative thing. 
and faith toward God as a positive thing. And so we put them in two different categories. But that's not true. True saving faith toward God is part and parcel of what repentance truly is. You remember in the sixth chapter of Hebrews when he gives us the foundation stones of the temple. What is the first stone? One stone is made up of two parts. What is that stone? I will not lay again the foundation of repentance and faith toward God. One stone. On one side, it's the loss of faith in self, and we call that repentance. On the other side, it is the active, positive, forward-moving, indomitable faith toward God that says, I put all my confidence in Him. Repentance is ultimately and most simply just losing faith in self. In self's energy or power, in self's perspective, in self's righteousness or innate goodness, in self's capacity to love or do anything good. It is losing faith in self. But that's not it. It is replacing faith in self with an active faith toward God. Surrender is part of repentance. Maybe even the biggest part. But it is not the whole of repentance. You cannot have repentance without surrender. But you can have surrender in a certain way without repentance. Amen? You remember Paul told us that there were two kinds of sorrow, didn't he? One that resulted in death and one that resulted in repentance. He uses repentance as a synonym for life. Remember? He says there is a sorrow that leads to death and there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. He's making repentance synonymous with life, with resurrection. You remember in the 11th chapter of Acts, he says Peter is telling the apostles about Cornelius receiving the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit except the resurrection power of God coming into someone's life? And it says that the apostles quieted down and glorified God, seeing that God had granted the Gentiles also repentance unto life. Repentance is death on the one side, but it is life on the other side. It is not just surrender. And faith is not just surrender. When the Japanese government surrendered after the two bombs, their surrender was complete wasn't it? Did that mean that they had an active faith in the allied powers? <laughs> Hardly. They had capitulation. They had yielded. But they did not have faith. So surrender may be the biggest part of faith, but it is not the entirety of faith. Faith is not a passive thing that says, I know I'm wrong. 
It is a passive thing and a positive thing. It is something that says, I know I'm wrong. But more importantly, I know God is right. More than just knowing it in my head, I believe it. I believe, therefore, I have spoken. And I don't just speak. I believe, therefore, I act. It is not faith without works. It is faith with works. It is not a dead faith or a false faith. It is not believing in vain, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15. It is believing unto the saving of the soul. So somebody who says, I, I have faith in God. I just don't, I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. If you have faith in God, you understand everything you need to understand. You understand that God is in control. If you have faith in God, then you're not left with any fears of man that could possibly ensnare you. Faith displaces fear. Because it's not just the loss of confidence in self. It is the presence, it is the active energizing of the confidence that you now have in God. Brother Howard quoted from 1 John 4, where he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Fear involves punishment. Will there be punishment if we do evil? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. The only reason we should fear is if we're saying that we submit to God, but we're still doing evil that deserves punishment. If we have faith in God, then we're done with evil. <laughs> but he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, because fear involves punish, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. If you look at the grammar there, I think it's quite clear what he's saying. The one who fears is not perfected in love. He does not say the one who fears has not been perfected by getting enough love. The, the, the grammar is pointing in the opposite direction. It's pointing out. I always read that scripture, he who fears perfect love casts out all fear, so love me some more and I won't fear anymore. I need more love coming in and that'll get rid of my fear. And that's true, but that's not precisely what he's saying there. He says he who fears has not himself been perfected in the discipline of loving. My paraphrase. He has not been perfected in loving. <laughs> the fear, the love that casts out fear comes from inside the house and throws fear through the window. <laughs> it doesn't stay inside the house all bunkered up and say, please come cast out this fear that I've invited in. It throws fear from the inside out and says, I am not going to believe this. I am not going to submit to this. I hear a voice calling to me that I trust, that I believe. Here you go, fear. Lord, here I come. Lord, if it be you, then command me to come to you. That was an act of faith because he trusted Jesus and the love Jesus had for him. And he had the same love for Jesus. If it be you, that was the operative word. If it be you, if it be anybody else, I don't have the courage. But if it be you, then for your sake, and because of the relationship we have, just say the word, and I'll be there, Lord. 
So faith cannot either be divorced from love. Faith is trusting someone completely. Absolutely completely. We know that Peter started, started to sink before he got to Jesus. And we know that there were other times when he also started to sink. That love had not completely cast out the fear from the inside out. Peter was caught up in the fear of Caiaphas's courtyard and all that was going on there. And he had not let love come into his heart so profoundly as to displace all room for fear and self-preservation. But the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he was going to one day stand on the day of Pentecost. And he was going to unlock every door, open every window, and let the flood of God's love pour in without hindrance until there was no room for fear anymore. The love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then he would be able to stand before the Sanhedrin, before the Romans, before anyone and everyone, and there would be nothing but faith coming out. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, I pray that your faith would not fail. But then he says, but when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. Remember what Paul said, circumcision is of no value at all. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Faith is in God, but we don't have faith in God until we start expressing it as love for one another. So he said, I have prayed that your faith would not fail. He saw that his lack of a genuine repentance or conversion was a deficit in faith. Would you agree? I have prayed that your faith would not fail. But when you have been converted or turned again, strengthen your brothers. Faith in the beginning was in Peter, in all his brave statements. Faith in the end was in Jesus. And the result of faith coming again, this conversion, this repentance that amounted to saving faith, was that Peter would turn out and he would strengthen his brothers. How do you know if someone is truly living in their repentance? How do you know that they are converted this morning? I don't mean have been converted a long time ago. How do you know that they are converted? Convert, epistrepho, and matneo, I don't know if I got the Greek right, but the word conversion and, and repentance in Greek are the same. Amen? That means to turn from. So how do you know that, you, that we are converted this morning? How do we know that we're really doing God's will? Is it possible that we could have been diverted? Is it possible that everything could have slowly, incremental adjustments at a time been shifted back so that everything became about us? Me, my needs, my losses, my rights, my future, my feelings, 
How do we know? When you are converted, strengthen your brothers. So you could say, you know you're converted when you're strengthening your brothers. Is that biblical? John, decades after Jesus said this to his best friend Peter, John wrote a church and he wanted them to know how they could know that they were really still in the kingdom of the Son of His love. That they had really passed out of the dominion of darkness and into the dominion of God's light. He wrote a church so that they could know for sure, am I still in it, God? Am I still repented? He said, by this, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He remembered the words of Jesus to Peter. If you look around you and you're moved with love and you say, I can't believe I'm in the presence of this company. Well, then you can be assured in your heart that you are still in the kingdom of the son of his love. But if you look around and you say, what's in this for me? Then you need to become concerned. You need to become concerned that as the serpent beguiled Eve, you have been beguiled. You have been perverted. You have been diverted instead of converted. Slowly but surely, it has started to become about me. My role, my place. And if that's the case, then you're going to be someone who does not have the same kind of faith and love that you once had. You're going to be someone who makes a lot of good confessions followed by but. Or makes a lot of negative confessions followed by nothing. You're going to be saying things like, I really want to do God's will, and I, I really felt it at one time in my life, but... Are you going to say things like, I once felt so much love in this fellowship, and I, I once felt so blessed, and it felt like the paradise of God, but... And the only thing that you need to follow that butt with is, it all became about me at some point. And then we can just repent and come back around and let it all be about Jesus again. I want to do God's will. I really felt the Holy Spirit in the meeting, but I'm so afraid. Is fear something that God coddles? You know, there's the list of sins, the, the bad sins and the pitiful sins. <clears throat> Is fear one of the pitiful sins? The bad sins are pride. The bad sins are lying. The bad sins are going off and doing something terrible. Then there's these pitiful sins. And every time I, I hear someone has one of those pitiful sins, I get these warm, fuzzy feelings. Oh, I'm so sorry. Is that how Jesus treated fear? Was it in the pitiful sin category? Remember the man who had the talents? There were three men who had talents, remember? But one of them became a dead end for the grace of God. He became like the Dead Sea. Everything flowed in and nothing flowed out. 
Maybe he could point to the fact that less flowed into him than everybody else, but then God would have, to, would have had to point out that more would have kept flowing if he had kept using what he was receiving. But anyway, you remember what he said to the Lord in that parable? I knew this about you. I had a perspective about God. And what was the next word he used? And I was afraid. Oh, buddy, don't be afraid. Is that what the Lord says in that situation? Let's talk about those fears. He said, you wicked and lazy servant. What about about in Hebrews, the third chapter? See to it, my brethren, that there be in none of you a pitiful heart of unbelief that would cause you to depart from the living God. Is that what he said? See to it, my brethren, that there be in none of you an evil heart of unbelief. Why would he call it an evil heart? And why would Jesus call him, you wicked and lazy servant? Why would God express so intense an anger and rejection of something that we tend to show a lot of pity for? Why do we look at fear differently than he did? Why do we look at cowardice differently than he did? Revelations 21. He who overcomes will inherit all these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the coward is the opposite of the overcomer. Is an overcomer someone who's never made a mistake? You can't overcome something. You can't come over something unless you have landed on the wrong side of something, right? By definition, an overcomer is someone who had to get over some problems, had to rise above some obstacles, some failures, some sins, some impossibilities, amen? And he says the one who climbs over, the one who picks himself up and gets himself over that obstacle, no matter what it takes, he's going to inherit all these things. But the cowardly, the reason we don't overcome is because we're cowards. And then he gives this list. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and the murderers and the immoral person and the sorcerers and the idolaters and the liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That pit, he says, that you were never able to quite climb out of, that pit is going to open up beneath your feet and it's going to be the lake of fire. You keep feeling sorry for yourself. You keep offering all your excuses. You better let something rise up inside of you that says, God, above every other sin, 
protect me and guard me and deliver me from the sin of self-pity and cowardice. Because it is the first sin that he lists as a reason that you're going to stay on the backside of your biggest problem until that little pit becomes a great pit and that great pit a lake of fire. Liar is the last thing he mentions. Then idolaters, then sorcerers, then immoral people, then murderers. But the first thing he mentioned is the coward who is unbelieving and abominable. The strongest language he dedicates in this passage for the people who will inhabit hell is devoted for the coward. Because a coward is someone who has encountered God's love, who has encountered God's truth. The faith that comes by hearing the word should have been his. But he is someone who blocked his ears and stayed in his position of powerlessness just because he chose to believe his own version of reality that brought damnation instead of believing God's. All the others are powerful sins. Murder, immorality, sorcery, idolatry, lying. These are powerful sins. These are addictive sins. These are sins that have strong grips that weigh on us heavily. But cowardice, it is our response to the weakest sin when we don't want to do what it takes to overcome it. It's just us saying, I don't think I can. I don't think I can do this. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery or bondage to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Am I dead, Lord? Am I still converted, Lord? Do you have faith in your heart? Do you have love in your heart? Or has your faith failed and your ability to serve your brothers completely dried up? Do you still have faith in your heart? Do you still have love in your heart? Well, this is the victory that overcomes the world. And by this you know you've passed out of death and into life. Are you hiding behind excuses? Are you accepting that whiny, pitiful version of reality? Amen. Well, then you're becoming a Cain. You're becoming a Saul. You're becoming an Esau. Are you standing up like a man? And are you saying, God, I'm going to wrestle all through the night? Until daybreak, 
and I'm going to keep wrestling and grappling until I feel that blessing come again into my life that I cannot achieve by my own cunning and conniving, well, then you might be one who perseveres with God. Faith might be producing perseverance. Are you hiding behind fears, unbelief? Well, you better repent because that pit is full of sinking sand. What does it mean to repent, God? Have I repented if I've only lost faith in myself? No. In fact, I may have just started the sorrow that leads to death. I've only repented when I've lost all faith in self and all pity in self and all excuses for self. And I have this powerful, energizing, indomitable, victorious faith that God is able and he's going to do what he's promised. He is able to make me stand. Thank you, Jesus. I love God. I feel in love with Jesus. He has not given me... Look at the juxtaposition that he gives here. He says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. But he has not given us a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. If you're being led by fear, if you're being bound by fear, then you're not being led by the Spirit. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is the breaking of chains. There is the tearing down of excuses and arguments that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. But he says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of bondage leading to fear again. That's the opposite. Are you walking in fear? Are you walking in self-protection, self-preservation? Well, then you haven't received the Spirit that would make you a son of God. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. How do you feel when you come into this meeting? How do you feel when you come into the presence of God? Lowering your head, looking around furtively, all locked up in fear and what other people are thinking? Or has He put the spirit of sonship in your heart? By which you cry out, Abba, Father. As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you don't have that Spirit inside of you, then you can't say you're a son of God. I told him on Friday, I've met Brother Zephyr's dad. I've met him over in Israel, not this time, but time before last. Would it be appropriate for me to just walk up to him and say, Hi, Dad. What about one of your dads? Would you like me to walk up to him? Hi, Dad. Good to see you. That'd make you pretty nervous, wouldn't it? It's wrong. What gives us the right to call someone our dad? Abba is like Daddy, right? 
What gives us the right to call someone our dad? Well, in, in, in this case, if his dad adopted me and I took on his name, I suppose in some sense that would, that would legitimize it. It might be difficult still. Wouldn't be an actual thing, but it would at least be a, a virtual thing. What is he saying gives us the right to call God our Father, Abba? What gives us the right to call Jesus' dad our dad? As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He has not given you a spirit of fear leading to bondage, but He has given you a spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. If that spirit of sonship has not come into our hearts, then we don't have a right to call Him our dad. He says just in three verses earlier, He says, if any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. You think there are going to be people who say on the day of judgment, you're my father. God, you're my father. And he says to, you, to them, I do not know you. You do not belong to me. Because you were safe and insulated in your own mind. You never needed my spirit. You, you never walked by faith. You could walk by sight. You had your own plans perfectly laid out. And I don't know you. If you'd been part of me, then you would have been fulfilling my plan. You would have had my burden in your heart. You would have become one with my body who had my mind and my vision. You would have had my love inside of you. You would have been obeying my great commandment to love one another. But I don't know you. Or where you're coming from. I can't identify with what motivates you. All of these are my sons, and I know what motivates them. They have my very spirit put inside of them. And it's displaced all fear, all bondage. And they're driven. They're motivated. They're inspired. Is that the attitude of the man who viewed God as an austere master? The unprofitable servant, is that how he viewed God? Abba, Father. No. He viewed him as an obligation. He viewed him as a superpower. But he didn't view him as his father. He wasn't excited by God. He wasn't in love with Jesus. He had lost that feeling that Brother Howard was communicating to us. Have you lost that feeling? Do you still view it as Abba, Father? Or do you view it as a harsh master? It's possible to lose that feeling. The Ephesus church was one of the best churches that received a letter in the book of Revelations. He told them everything they, did, they had done right. You remember? You've done this right, and you've done that right, and you've done this right. But he said, I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. You haven't lost your first obligation. You've lost your first love. 
It doesn't come from the wellspring of trust and faith and love anymore. You look around you and you see people who are enraptured in the presence of God. And you desire to look into what they have. But you once had it also. What does he say to the people who had lost their love? The answer was repentance. Because repentance is not a negative thing. It's a negative thing for self. But it's a positive thing. It brings the love of God alive in our hearts again. It brings repentance unto life. Amen. Repentance from that old dead mind with its its old hopeless perspectives. With its judgmental attitudes. Repentance from trying in the flesh and being discouraged in the flesh. And repentance to believe God. I don't want us to be drawn away from the love of God that is the ultimate proof of everything. The love of God for for Him. The love for each other. The victory of faith. And Lord, if I've started to lose it, help me to repent. Help me to repent until I start to feel it again. If I start to lose that feeling of love, I don't need to say, oh, somebody needs to love me a little more. I need to repent. And if I start to lose that energizing victory that overcomes the world on, of faith, I don't need to say, oh, someone needs to hype me up. Someone needs to perform some signs and wonders. I need to repent. I need to say, oh, God, how has this evil heart of unbelief crept into my thinking and to my feelings? I hope I'm not discouraging you. I hope I'm reminding you I hope I'm showing you that all that lies between you and the victory you once felt is a little membrane of human perspective that has taken God's perspective out of the way. And if you'll break through that and say, Lord, I want to see it your way again, and you'll humble the flesh, and the flesh is mind, which is the ultimate seed of all of its pride, then you're going to feel it again. If you'll offer yourself as a living sacrifice and hold nothing back, then you'll know You'll know in your heart what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you'll be able to say, I have food to eat that you don't know of. My food is to do the will of God and I know it now because I'm offering the full sacrifice. I'm in all the way, Lord. Whether it's worship or prayer, whether it's serving, whether it's loving my brother, I'm in all the way, God. Thank you, Jesus. I want back my first love, Jesus. 